is it possible for you to know God? I don't just mean, is it possible for you to have sincerely held religious beliefs or religious opinions? I mean, is it possible for you to know with certainty the truth about the divine? Of course, I'm, I'm tipping my hand when I say God and not God's, right? Is the divine an it, she, he, or they? Should we speak of one God or many gods? Is God more like the force from Star Wars, right? It's an energy field that sustains all life. I'm sorry that my illustrations only come from three movies. <laughs> or is God a person, someone that you can actually know? We live in a society that is increasingly given up on the question about the truth about God. Uh, but the truth is, this actually isn't a recent development. So back in the 18th century, the German philosopher Immanuel Kant posited that we actually can't know anything about the world around us as it really is. We can only know our perceptions about the world. And so if we can't know the truth, if we can't actually comprehend the world as it actually, truly, really is, if all we have is our interpretations of the world, and, and you know, at least the world, we can, we can see it and taste it and touch it and smell it. Well, how much less confident should we be, Kant argued, about the divine? Uh, this God who we can't see or taste or touch or smell. And so modern and postmodern philosophies have followed. Is it arrogant to claim to have the truth about God? This morning we come to consider some of these questions and more as we begin our series in the book of Hebrews. So let me encourage you to turn to Hebrews 1 now. It's, uh, Hebrews is the eighth to last book of the Bible. And if you didn't grab a Hebrew scripture journal, let me encourage you to grab one. Uh, if you raise your hand, Jesse and Ashley have kindly volunteered to give you one. It'll be really helpful to have it in front of you, and you can keep it. This is the awkward moment where you raise your hand, and you say, yes, I don't have one. All right. Well, you can try to find one after service if, if you didn't grab one. It, it'll, helpful, it'll be helpful for you to have the scriptures in front of you. Just a, a little bit of a background on the book of Hebrews. It was likely delivered first as a sermon. So it wasn't first written down, but likely an oration. It was a sermon delivered to a congregation. That congregation was likely in Rome. Uh, we know that because at the end of the letter, it refers to the brothers and sisters in Italy. Most scholars date the letter to shortly before 70 AD. So that would be about 35 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. We don't know who the author is. 2,000 years of Christian history have produced a lot of guesses. But they're just that, guesses. Uh, the main idea of the book of Hebrews is that you, Christians, should not fall away from following Christ to go back to Judaism or any other religion or philosophy. And the reason for that is that Jesus is better. 
That's the author of the Hebrews. That's his favorite little phrase, better. That's the kind of the word. If you, if you look for that, you'll see it all over the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better. He's better than the prophets, better than the angels, better than Moses, better than Joshua, better than Aaron. He's better than anyone that came before him. He offers a better rest, a better forgiveness, a better purification, a better hope. Jesus is better in every conceivable way. So therefore, Christian, don't fall away. You won't be able to improve on Jesus. It only gets worse. That's the message of Hebrews. Next week, Pastor Mark will be taking us from chapter 1, verse 5, all the way up through chapter 2, verse 4. Uh, But this morning, we'll just be looking at the opening few verses. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 4. We'll have two sections, and the main idea of our passage is simply this. God's Son is supreme. God's Son is supreme. So look with me at Hebrews 1, beginning in verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Amen. Well, our first point is found in verses 1 to 2a, the first half of part, uh, verse 2, entitled, The Supreme Revelation. And these verses, we, we see a comparison and a contrast, don't we? Uh, you notice that it sounds like the opening to Star Wars. It's not quite. Long ago, in a galaxy, no, no, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. We're to notice how things have escalated. Uh, Not that things were bad previously in the way God related and revealed himself, uh, but things have gotten better. There's three things about verse one. First, the time and methods of revelation. In the past, God gave visions, sent angels, inspired dreams, wrote his law on tablets of stone. He worked miracles. He spoke audibly for people to hear. He set mountains and bushes ablaze. Uh, You know, God was creative. That's how he used to communicate his word. And second, you notice the the messengers of Revelation. God spoke by the prophets. So when the prophets were speaking, whose word were they declaring? 
Well, well certainly it was, it was their word, right? And it was Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Haggai, Samuel. It was their word. But more fundamentally, it was God's word. It was God who was speaking. That's why over 400 times in the Old Testament, the prophets say, thus saith the Lord. Right? Because the prophets were ambassadors declaring, heralding God's message. They came not to declare their own news, but God's news. They served as God's mouthpiece. And so long ago, if you wanted to know what God was like, where did you turn? It wasn't stargazing or navel-gazing. No, praise be to God. God, he revealed himself. He, he could have stayed shrouded in mystery, hidden from our sight and our perception, but he spoke through the prophets. Uh, that's why we still give so much attention to God's word in the apostles and prophets, isn't it? Uh, because we believe their words aren't mainly their words, they're God's words. They're true and trustworthy and deserving of our study and application to our lives. And then third, the recipients. God spoke to our fathers. This would have referred to the Jewish fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, yes, but, but actually it really would have referred to the, the whole nation of Israel to all their spiritual leaders. So God revealed himself to this one nation. And so, you know, just kind of full stop, that's awesome, right? The fact that God sent visions and angels and mountains ablaze and all that, uh, that he spoke through the prophets to this one nation, hallelujah, praise God. But things have gotten better. That's what we see next in verse 2. Let's take them in reverse order from what we just covered. Notice the recipients. So number, number three, the recipients. It's us. Who is the us that the author is speaking about? Well, he's referring to Christians. He's referring to Jews and Gentiles, Ethiopians and Greeks. Barbarians and Scythians, Roman citizens and foreigners, slave and free, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, people in Sweden and people in Oman, people in Bedford, in Jerusalem, in Rome, people all over the globe. Now God has spoken not just to one nations, but to all nations, even to us in Bedford. Number two, notice the messenger of Revelation. Now the messenger isn't a separate being, a middleman who you know, came from us to tell us about God. No, verse two says that now God has spoken to us by his son. Beloved, there is no better messenger there is no higher envoy and emissary. The author is referring to Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is so amazing because it says that God himself has come down in the person of his Son. It's one thing for a king to send his lieutenant to proclaim his message. It's another thing for the king himself 
to condescend to our level, to speak to us, to be with us. How is Jesus a better revelation than the former prophets? Well, for starters, the prophets foretold about Jesus, right? The the prophets would point towards God and say, that's what God is like. Be more like that. Know him. When Jesus came, he pointed to himself. And he said, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father. There's nothing in God that you are missing out on if you know Jesus. There are no depths that Jesus has not mined. There are no mysteries too great for the Son. He is God of God, light from light. If you want to know God, you must receive his speech in the person of his beloved Son. This is the way God has spoken to us. Now you might ask, well, Scott, if if Jesus is so clearly the revelation of God, why don't more people recognize that? Why is it so hard for, for that to be believable? Why are we so reluctant to receive God's revelation and believe and follow the Son? I think it's because doing so would cause us to submit and have to accept what God says. When God is the one who reveals, he sets the terms. He's in charge. He's in control. And yet the truth is we all want to be in control, don't we? We want to control what God is like on our own terms, according to our own desires. Not receive the revelation of God in his son. We would prefer to invent the divine according to our own liking. So some people, they look at the world and they assert that God must be like that. I want a God like that, like a, like a bull, right? Strong and assertive. Or other people say, I, I want my God to be like, like a warm blanket, comforting and serene. Some people look to the world to create their God. Other people look within themselves, don't they? I was talking to a friend just the other day and he said, I'm God you're God. We're all God. I told him, praise be to God, I am not God. You do not want me being God. You can ask my wife, you can ask my kids. I'm a sinner. We're told to look inside of ourselves. You have the answers. You are the divine. Trust your feelings. Let your experiences determine truth. If you want to know God, look within. And so it's no surprise that humanity for Millennia has been inventing innumerable gods. It it all depends on where you look, what you value, what you esteem. That is your God. Yet what makes Christianity different? It, It is not based on philosophical postulation or personal experience or human reasoning. Christianity does not begin with thoughts from man about God, but the revelation of God to man. 
That's how we can know what God is like. Because God, in his grace, has taken it upon himself. He's taken the initiative to reveal himself, first through the prophets, and now through the Son. So, beloved, if you want to know what God is like, I have really great news for you. God does not intend for his person and his character to be a mystery. He wants you to know him. That's why he sent Jesus. Look to the Son. You'll never arrive at the truth unless you start with Jesus Christ, the Son of God. For God has spoken through his one and only Son. And this relates to the third point, or the first point, whichever way you're counting, up or down. The the timing. You notice the contrast in the timing. Long ago, God spoke through the prophets, but verse 2 begins... But now, in these last days, this is really significant. The author isn't simply making a point of then versus now. Now, he calls the present time, that is all the time after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, ever since 33 AD, he says that we've been living in the last days. The author was living in the last days when he preached this sermon around 68 AD or so. And 2,000 years later, we are still living in the last days. I'm guessing that sounds strange to you. Something that lasts for 2,000 years, you wouldn't really call that the last of something. You wouldn't really say, well, that's coming to an end. There's only been 2,000 years of it. In what sense are these the last days, like right now, that we're living in? Let me mention three ways. Three ways that we are in the last days presently, currently. First, we are not awaiting any other salvation. We're not awaiting any other salvation. So in the Old Testament, God made promise after promise after promise about a coming deliverance. And in Jesus' incarnation, when the Son of God took on human flesh, when he lived the perfect life, when he died for our sins as our substitute, when he rose from the grave, all those promises came true. They've not all been fully consummated, but we already enjoy salvation and its benefits. Uh, Yes, there are some things that we only have the, the first fruits. We're awaiting the fullness of it. But our salvation has already been accomplished. We're not awaiting. There's no new Savior. Uh, We're just awaiting kind of the, the finishing touches of the salvation that Jesus has already accomplished. In that sense, the decisive and last things have already happened. And so we're in the last days. Second, we are in the last days in the sense that we are not awaiting any other revelation. We're not awaiting any other revelation. So throughout salvation history, what we find is that God's revelation accompanies God's salvation. For example, God revealed himself to Abraham and, reveal, and saved him and Sarah from barrenness. God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush and then Israel at Mount Sinai when he saved them from Egypt. God's revelation always accompanies God's salvation. That is significant because just as Jesus is the final salvation of God, 
So Jesus is the final revelation of God. Because again, revelation always exists to explain and unpack the salvation. The revelatory age ended when the 12 apostles, Jesus' handpicked ambassadors, died. Okay, this means that there are no more last chapters that need to be written to the Bible or to salvation history. That means we don't need a Muhammad or a Joseph Smith. There is nothing incomplete about the salvation or revelation that Jesus brought. We're not lacking in anything. We don't need to be awaiting more information, more truth, because we have Jesus. We have the Son. And now it's the last days. There's nothing more that we should be awaiting and expecting other than Jesus. Plus, any further revelation would be a downgrade from Jesus, wouldn't it? You'd be like, all these prophets. Then you get the Son. And then, oh man, we only get these prophets again. It'd be this major retrograde. The, the, the climax is the Son, Jesus Christ. So we won't receive any further special revelation. And then the third way that we are in the last days, even today, is that Jesus could come back and end this story at any time. There are no more chapters that need to be written. Back in the Old Testament, you knew the world wasn't going to end because God had all these promises he needed to fulfill. But now here in 2023, Jesus said that he's going to come back like a thief in the night when you least expect it. Nobody's going to see it coming. It could be any day now. Friend, are you ready? Are you ready for his return? The point is we are in the last days because we are not promised tomorrow. So in the timing, the recipients, and especially the messenger of the son, now things have gotten better. Jesus Christ, the son of God, is the supreme and final revelation of God. Let's turn now to our second section in verses 2b to 4, entitled, The Supreme Ruler. The Supreme Ruler. What we're going to find here is seven statements about the identity of this son, about who Jesus Christ is, both regarding his human and divine natures, about what he's done for us. And I think it's appropriate to ask, you know, why is there so much emphasis here on doctrine? Why so much focus on Jesus's identity? When we began the church last year, we began by going through the Gospel of Mark, and there we saw that the, the main question throughout the Gospel of Mark is, who is Jesus? Well, these first few verses show a similar, a similar preoccupation. Who is the Son? Now, the reason the New Testament is obsessed with answering this question is because to be a Christian is to hitch your destiny, your eternal fate, on this one man, Jesus Christ. You are banking on him being right, 
on him being exactly who he said he is. And if he's not, you're toast. You're done. Who, who knows the gods that you've offended? Who knows how many personal sacrifices and inconveniences you've endured for what is only a myth and a legend? Who knows the years you've wasted of your life in devotion to a liar and a cheat? He's stolen from everyone in this room if he's not who he says he is. When Jesus said, follow me, well, who is he? We find here seven statements about the son's identity. First, the middle of verse two says that he is the heir of all things. The concept of Jesus being the heir or inheritor, you notice it actually both begins and ends this list. So in verse four, at the very end, it says that when Jesus has inherited a name more excellent than the angel's. Why this preoccupation with inheritance? Well, in short, the author of Hebrews is alluding back to Psalm 2, what Nick read for us earlier. And we're not just guessing that the author might have had this in mind, because look at verse 5, the very next verse after our passage. It's a quote from Psalm 2. So we know that the author had Psalm 2 on his mind. What particularly about Jesus becoming an heir? The son becoming an heir, how, how does that relate? Well, Psalm 2 refers to the king of Israel at his enthronement. And there, God calls him his son. The king of Israel was the son of God. In Psalm 2, the Lord says to this king, Ask of me, after his enthronement, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, or heritage. The ends of the earth, your possession. And so Hebrews 1 is telling us that this is fulfilled in Jesus. He is the ruling and reigning king of Israel, king of the nations, king of all things, heir, inheritor of the cosmos. He's the son who rules and inherits as God's anointed one. Second statement we find at the end of verse 2. We see that it was through the Son that God created the world. Well, the previous statement referred to the Son of God according to his human nature, right? How Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh. He was the Davidic king, the anointed one, the king of Israel. This verse clearly refers to the Son and what he has done in his deity. Uh, that's just what Deborah read for, for us earlier from John 1. The Son is the agent of creation the one through whom all things came to be. And so notice the interplay between these two realities in verse 2. On the one hand, the Son of God, according to his divine nature, he created the world. On the other hand, the Son of God, according to his human nature, now he has inherited and rules over all things. You know, the picture is one of cosmic supremacy. There is no rival, no opposing king, no enemy nation that can thwart the dominion of Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, the creator and ruler of all. 
the third thing we learn about the Son is found in verse 3. It's really staggering language. Just look there. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. I don't know how you could state more clearly that Jesus is divine, that Jesus is God. It's hard to think of a more stunning and exalted view of Jesus than the New Testament. Again, we we mentioned this in Mark, we mentioned this in Colossians. I mean, it's just all over the place. The New Testament is replete. It's just full of references to Jesus' deity. So sometimes people say really foolish things like, oh, Jesus' deity was imposed upon the Bible, imposed upon the church in the fourth century. Well, this was written around 68 AD. Jesus is God. The first clause states that he is the radiance or brightness of God's glory. The imagery of the the writer here, it's one of kind of the rays and the brightness coming from the sun. There's the glory and then there's the brightness that shines out from that glory. Uh, Pastor John Piper lists a couple conclusions that we should draw from this stunning imagery. You know, no analogy is perfect, but this sun, the sun and the beams of light that come out is a great one that relates to how God the Father and God the Son relate. So, so let me just quote from John Piper. If there's, yeah, you can ask me where the quotes end and my comments intersperse. But he, he says, first, there is no time that the sun exists without the beams of radiance. They cannot be separated. Right, so you can't have one without the other. As the sun always emits light, so the Father has always been with the sun. The glory of the Father has ever and always begotten the brightness of the sun. As the Father is eternal, so is the sun. Second, the radiance is the glory radiating out. However, it is not essentially different from the glory. Okay, so again, the point is that the sunlight is not a distortion or a downgrade of the sun's glory. It's not a lesser thing. It is the brightness of the thing, the expression of the thing. Quote, the rays of the sun are an extension of the sun, so Christ is eternally begotten of the Father, but not made or created. He is of the same nature, the same essence. And then third, we see the sun by means of seeing the rays of the sun. Likewise, we see God the Father by seeing Jesus. As another author puts it, The Son is the glory made visible. Not a different glory from the Father, but the same glory in another form. The Father is the glory concealed. The Son is the glory revealed. The Father is the glory concealed. The Son is the glory revealed. All this is confirmed in that second phrase, He's the exact imprint of his nature. That word exact imprint, it was used for the stamp that would be used for coinage. Right? You think you've got this, this mold, this stamp, and you put it in 
uh, either you know wax if you're doing a letterhead or you put in a hot metal like iron or copper uh, or even gold or silver. And, and the image in the coin is the exact imprint of the archetype. There's no difference. There's no flaw. There's no differential there. You get the exact imprint. It's not distorted, but the exact representation of the mold. This is how Jesus perfectly is and perfectly makes known God's divine nature. Right? So as God the Father and God the Spirit are infinite, eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, holy, just, righteous, loving, wise, free, sovereign, you name it, that's what Jesus is. So is the Son. This means, beloved, that for all groups, for all religions, for all those who claim to follow Jesus, but who fail to recognize his deity, for all those who deny this, they have a fundamental misunderstanding of who Jesus is. He is not a mere example or religious teacher. He's not even simply an impressive angel or a mighty creation. No, he's not that at all. He is the Son, the Creator God, God Himself. He is worthy of our worship. The fourth thing we learn about the Son is found in the middle of verse 3, that He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Again, we find another assertion of the Son's divine prerogatives, His, His divine responsibilities. So notice that God didn't just create the world, step back and say, good luck. He didn't just kind of wind up the universe like a clock and then let it go. He's not absent. No, he's actively and intimately involved in sustaining this creation. In Genesis 1, we find out that it's God's powerful word that does the work. In John 1, it, we find out that the word is none other than the Son of God incarnate, Jesus Christ. And what's so fascinating here in Hebrews 1 is that the same Jesus who lay helpless as a babe in a manger is the same Jesus who has always upheld the universe by his powerful word. And, and this is a mystery, right? I mean, we should expect when we're talking about God and his divine nature that there are going to be some mysteries, God is infinite, we're finite, we're not going to be able to fully comprehend him. Okay, but we can understand true things about him. Uh, the mystery and beauty and glory of the incarnation is that Jesus didn't stop being divine when he came to earth. Uh, he didn't divest himself of his divine attributes. Instead, he added to himself a human nature while never giving up his divine nature. Hence, he has always upheld the universe by the word of his power. The fifth thing we learn about the Son is still towards the end of verse 3. There we learn about how he made purification for sins. You see, our passage so far has mentioned how Jesus is both the divine king and the human king. Uh, the Son of God became a man. But like, why? Why did Jesus come to earth? 
Here we find that it wasn't mainly to set an example or be a teacher. It was to make purification for sins. Because, beloved, that is our biggest problem in life. That we are naturally defiled by our sins. I don't think many of us would look at our lives and claim that's our biggest dilemma if we just took a quick survey. We would point to our lackluster job or our poor health or dysfunctional relationships or scarce money. There are a thousand problems that seem bigger and more pressing than our moral pollution before God. But then again, we aren't always the best at recognizing the danger we're in. You see, God's word is clear. Our biggest problem isn't the ways that we are sinned against. It's the sins that we commit. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous. No, not one. There is no one who does not sin. God is clear that all of us, all of us fall short. And we know this in our heart of hearts, don't we? I mean, we can try to justify ourselves to our coworkers, explain our behavior to our spouse, minimize our sin to our friends and neighbors. We can laugh about it. Uh, but in our hearts, in our heart of hearts, we realize that we do bad things and we are defiled. How can we achieve cleansing? Is there something that we can do, maybe? A church attendance or Bible reading? good works, or serving the poor? Is there anything that we can do to make ourselves clean? Friends, the message of Christianity is that there is nothing that you can do to make yourself clean, but Christ can wash away all your sins. He and he alone can make you pure. That's the very reason why Jesus came to earth. God the Son became a man, and he lived a perfect life. He never was defiled by sin. He never committed transgression, never was polluted, never was stained. He kept God's law perfectly. And then he went to the cross. And there he paid our debt. There he paid for our sins, taking upon himself the punishment that we deserve. He suffered in our place. And then three days later, he rose from the dead. On the cross, he endured God's judgment so you don't have to. He was treated as a dirty, vile sinner so that you could be seen as holy and righteous and spotless and pure. Because if you know your heart, you know you're not holy, spotless, blameless, and pure. None of us are. That's what makes the gospel so great that Jesus has done what no one else can do. That's why Jesus isn't just one way among many. So to be clear, if you can find another human being who is perfect, morally pure, never sinned, who will suffer for your sins, die as your substitute, and then rise from the dead, you don't need Jesus. You just find, need to find someone who does that. Well, friends, there is none other than Jesus. No amount of good works can purify our souls. As the Apostle Paul put it in Galatians 2, if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. 
If you could achieve cleansing through your good deeds, Jesus didn't need to come. He didn't need to die. They just could have dropped more commandments from Mount Sinai. Like, do this better. But we can't. Oh, friends, consider Christ's love and mercy, that he did not leave us in our filth and in our sin, but he came in love to provide the purification and the joy, the cleansing that only he can provide, the forgiveness, the eternal life. Are you burdened by guilt for deeds that you've done, words that you've spoken, thoughts that you've entertained. There is only one way to be made clean before God. That is to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Trust in the Son, and he will wash you white as snow. That's for the Christian and the non-Christian. Right? So if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, we're so glad that you've joined us. That's what we would call you to do. That's what we think is the most pressing need in your life, that you would be washed clean. And if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, right, sometimes it's easy to think, okay, five years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago, I was washed clean. And now I've got to be a really good person because then maybe I can make up for all the ways I fail. But beloved, that's not so. As Christians, we ever and always rely upon the blood of Jesus to make us pure. That, and that alone, it's what Mark read earlier, will purify our consciences. We know, like, I'm the worst sinner I know, because I know all my sins. And if you don't think of yourself as the worst sinner that you know, it probably means you don't know yourself as well as you should. So what are you going to do with those thoughts? How is your conscience going to be purified? Oh, friends, Christians, remember Christ. Remember the cross. What was Jesus' reward for the accomplishment of salvation? That's the sixth thing we note at the very end of verse 3. It says that after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Here the author is alluding to Psalm 110 which he'll quote in just a few verses in next week's passage. I won't belabor the point, because Pastor Mark will take that up further. Uh, But the point is this. After Jesus died, he didn't stay dead. No, he rose. And after he rose, he ascended into heaven, where now, as the Christ of Israel, as the king of all the nations, the heir of all the cosmos, now he shares God's very throne. He sits at God's right hand, ruling and reigning, honored and glorified because of his humility and his sacrifice. And that brings us to our seventh statement, bringing us full circle. He has become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. All right, so check this out. According to his human nature... When Jesus spent his life, his time on earth, according to his human nature, he was less than the angels. Nobody would have debated that the dusty, tired, hungry, harried, harassed, and humble Jesus who walked the roads of Palestine was less glorious in those moments 
than a magnificent angel. But now, even his human nature has become more excellent than the angels. Why is that? It's because now as a man, as a human being, the God-man, it is a man, a person, human being who is ruling the universe. Right? So we all know God rules over the universe. Okay? Right? That's kind of his job. Right? Created the world. He rules. That's his thing. We get that. But the Lord Jesus rules over creation, not just as God, but as a man. There is a human being who governs and controls and directs the whole cosmos. The God-man, Jesus Christ. And thus now, he who was the eternal son, according to his divine nature, has become the human son, the king of Israel, according to his enthronement in heaven. In fulfillment of Psalm 2, and as a man, Jesus has inherited a name that is way better than angel, which just means messenger. He has inherited the name son. So friend, what are you going to do with all this? It's a lot of theology. Why does the Bible give us theology? Why are we talking about Jesus' divine nature, his human nature, his atonement, dying on the cross? Scott, give me, give me something practical. Well, friends, because theology is for life, isn't it? How you understand yourself, who, who you understand yourself to be, who you understand God to be, those are the most fundamental questions in life. They shape us. So let me conclude with four points of application. Number one, look backwards for peace. Friend, if you think you can be saved on the last day before God's awesome throne because of your righteous deeds, you will never have peace. Because how can you in this life, how can you know if you've done enough? Uh, you don't know what evils you might commit in the future. Uh, we don't know the tally of our thoughts and words and actions. You'll never have peace. Yet, friend, if you're a Christian this morning, you can have tremendous peace. When you consider Christ's cross and his resurrection, you can rest knowing that Jesus paid it all. Though sin had left a crimson stain, he washed you white as snow. Done deal. In the past tense, you can have peace. Number two, look up with confidence. What I mean is that right now, Jesus is ruling and reigning in heaven over the universe. This means that there is a purpose in your pain, a plan in your suffering, a wise and loving hand even in your darkest hours. Our God has not been dethroned by Satan or sin or suffering as if he's lost control for a moment over your life or mine. No, God the Son is sovereignly orchestrating the affairs of the universe perfectly for your joy, if you believe in him, and for his glory. We can be confident of this in life's storms. Number three, Look forward 
with anticipation. Just as Christ left this earth to ascend to heaven, so too one day soon he will return to earth. And the glory that he now enjoys, he will share with his people. As Christians, we know the sufferings of this world. Jesus Jesus knew them as well. But as his suffering eventually gave way to glory, so too will it be for the believer. O weary saint, he is coming soon. Keep persevering. Keep trusting. And then fourth and finally, look to the Son to know God. If God had not spoken, your best guess would be as good as mine. Our religious opinions would be just that, mere opinions. Who am I to say what God is or is not like? Who are you to pretend to know? Yet, friends, God is not silent. He has spoken. He has spoken in his Son. It is not humility to refuse him. Friends, look to Christ. Receive him as God's perfect and final revelation. And you will know God. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you that you are the creator, ruler, sustainer of all things. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you for us and for our salvation, that you came down, you took on flesh to pay for our sins, to purify us and make us clean. Lord, we pray that truth would produce in us great joy, great perseverance, that we would know God through you, that you would be with us and that you would come back soon. We pray all these things in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Well, friends, we're going to conclude now by turning to page 15 to sing Jesus Paid It All, a great reflection and meditation on what the Lord Jesus has done for us. So let's stand together and turn to page 15 as we sing Jesus Paid It All. <laughs>